Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of the McMaster Communications Governance Observatory podcast. My name is Samantha Naidu, and for this episode, we will be exploring Dr. Blaine Haggard's original concept of digital economic nationalism. Dr. Haggard is here to speak with us today, and he is currently a research fellow at the Center for Global Cooperation Research in Germany. Okay, so the first question that I have is what is digital economic nationalism and how did it come to be, I guess, through history? Um, well, I don't know about through history, but I mean, the first time I started really thinking about, uh, about uh, something like digital economic nationalism, uh, I was interviewing uh, Jim Bosley, the, you know, the ex-CEO of, of uh, BlackBerry, who's been very, um, you know, very involved in issues around like kind of like uh, data governance and intellectual property and trade agreements. And when I was talking to him about these things, the language that he was using, I, I mean, it really, really struck me. It was very much about like, you know, how we need to have the Canadian government more involved in these issues, things like that. And it, it really brought to mind nothing more than, uh, than how, you know, I thought I could have, I could have heard this from a, a Canadian economic nationalist in the 1960s. You know, we've got this kind of like, you know, this, uh, you know, hugely successful uh, business guy who um, is, uh, you know, who, he's talking like he's a member of, of, the, of the CCF or the NDT from like, you know, the 50s and 60s. And so I thought this, you know, this is this is kind of this is kind of weird. Um, and and it was strange because this isn't really the kind of blunt language that you hear from, you know, from, you know, so-called serious people in Canada discussing economic policy. Um Usually, I, I mean, I used to work on uh, on Parliament Hill as an economist, and uh, one of my jobs was working on the finance committee. And every year, we'd go around the country, you know, asking people, "What do you want to see in the budget?" And of course, you know, you'd have people who would, uh, you know, who would, uh, you know, appear and say, "You know, our industry needs help. You know, can you please give us effectively a special favor?" And so that stuff is normal. What's what's completely abnormal, or what was up until I guess a couple of years ago was for a whole industry, in this case, the tech industry, to say, no, we're doing it wrong. I mean, we've got a basis to get rid of it. We've got to have more effectively protectionism. We've got to have more, uh, you know, more government involvement in the economy. Um, I came across, uh, you know, a quote from a, uh, from a tech CEO in, in uh, you know, I think it was in front of parliament, uh, Adam Belcher, who, who said of basically, um, he was saying that, uh, Canadian tech companies should be given preferential treatment when it comes to government procurement. And he was saying, our trading partners may call it protectionism, but you know, we need to do this, plus everyone else is doing it anyway. And that we need to do this stuff to help our, our company scale. So this, I saw this as kind of like a uh, kind of uh, of a rejection in, in a sense of uh, you know, 40 years or so of uh, economic orthodoxy in favor of free trade and minimal government uh, intervention in the economy. Okay, so I guess if we do move to an economy or a tech industry where Canada is much more involved and has more governance over our own techs, how does that, what are the implications of that, both positive and negative? Well, I mean, on the positive side, it, uh, it would recognize kind of the world that we live in. Because, I mean, so one of the things that, like, for instance, someone like Jim Bosley and, uh, and uh, our, our, our trading partners may call it protectionism uh, friend, um, you know, are recognizing is that essentially a knowledge-based economy is, uh, you know, much more kind of a winner-take-all economy than than we traditionally think of when we think about, like, say, free trade and goods and services. Um, 
right? So like, you know, the, there's the, uh, there's the uh, idea about uh, free trade is justified by appealing to the, uh, the theory of comparative advantage that, you know, if um, even the worst, you know, even the most inefficient country can make itself better off by engaging with trade. But uh, that doesn't really work out in a knowledge-centric economy where, for instance, intellectual property, um, it takes knowledge to make knowledge. And so that if you own and control a key part of knowledge, you can essentially set the terms on which other people kind of interact and, and innovate. And with data, it's, it's a similar thing. Um, you know, if you have access to a, a lot of data, it allows you to essentially to engage in, in, in you know, in, in much kind of more deeper or more efficient or, or better innovation than other companies, which can, in, in, you know, hurt competition. I guess the big neg the negative is, uh, is, is the fact that it is focused on a kind of like, I'm calling it digital economic nationalism. And I'm honestly, I'm not really happy with the term, but I haven't been able to think of something better. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, you know, he's, he, he's really leery about, about the use of that term because of course, you know, nationalism, I don't know if you've been, you know, following the news or anything, but there's been some bad stuff associated with nationalism these days and also historically. Right. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, it's led to a lot of really bad things. Um, and, and so, you know, there's always the worry that it, it could lead to, uh, you know, essentially just kind of a, a kind of a, a nativism for the sake of, of nativism. Um, that, and that's really not what I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying to get at was the idea of digital economic nationalism. And I'm not trying to say this is a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just trying to kind of describe what I see. And what I see essentially is um, basically calls coming from a business community, so from a business group, and also from, from some academics saying that we need greater kind of state involvement in the economy than we've had over the past, uh, since the 80s, um, that we need, um, and also like you see, for instance, uh, with groups like uh, Jim Balsley's uh, uh, Council for, for Canadian Innovators, talking about companies in terms of their national identity. We need to help Canadian companies scale up. So that's, that's kind of interesting. So there, as I said, if that just comes in terms of like, like, you know, Canada against the world and screw everyone else, that would be kind of bad. Um, but what's interesting, yeah, right. So, uh, but I mean, at the same time too, uh, 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 another worry is that um, you would end up, you know, call, you know, I worry um, on the big picture that this could lead to a kind of a zero sum game. Essentially it's saying, well, you know, Canada has to promote its companies. We want to get on top. We want to be the, the standard setter for all these other companies that, that use our tech and that, that uh, have to follow our standards and that we get paid for that. So um, the, my big worry effectively is that, you know, that we right now we're in a world where, uh, for instance, U.S. companies are dominant and the U.S., you know, the U.S. government is very interested in kind of preserving what I call a kind of a, like a, a kind of a knowledge feudalism. Um, I worry that we could kind of recreate that, but with a, uh, with, you know, with a slightly more diverse set of actors, including Canadian ones at the top. Mm -hmm. And then I guess moving on from there or building off of that. So has the Canadian go government done anything since um, the CEO of BlackBerry and other technology companies made this interest known? And uh, in general, I guess, relating to American companies, how much sway would Canadian government actually have over maybe creating more regulations against them? Um, so... Okay, so I'm going to skip the probably the second question by the time I, I, I get to the answer to the first question, but we'll see. Um, 
So, so Canada has taken some initial steps. Um, like for instance, we now have an intellectual property strategy that's more about ed education than anything. We're working on a national data strategy. Um, we have, for instance, like super cluster uh, funding that's, that's come out over the over the last uh, over the last 12 months. But interestingly enough, it's as open to foreign companies as it is to Canadian companies, and so um, that can create some issues uh, given the fact that uh, that you know like um, big companies or core companies in a sector can have an outsized influence on, on the sectors that develops around them. And the way that a knowledge economy is structured, um, if, the, uh, if, the center, if the main company is foreign, there's a good chance that a lot of persons the benefits that would otherwise accrue would kind of be sucked back to the, uh, back to the United States or to, uh, to whatever country that's putting it on. Um, as far as your other question, um, you know, what can Canada do? Um, at the end of the day, you know, Canada, the Canadian government has a, a lot of power. Um, it's just that they've chosen not to use it. Uh, and partly, I think, because uh, we've all bought into the myth that, you know, technology moves faster, is too global to regulate. But, um, you know, I think that's kind of nonsense. The, you know, the other example that I'm playing with in, in my own thinking right now is the banking sector. I mean, can you think of another more powerful you know, a more central part of, of the global economy. And, you know, they talk about the global financial sector, um, literally. But at the same time, too, you have a situation where, you know, for instance, Canadian, there's, we have uh, domestic banking regulations very strong in different countries. And Canada was fortunate enough to have very good regulation in this area so that when essentially, um, you know, American regulators and the American industry went completely off the deep end and, and kick-started the global financial crisis in 2008, we were relatively sheltered from that because of um, because of our own regulation. And so I think that one of the things I'd be interested in seeing people start to think about is, you know, what does it mean to have essentially to have kind of like an, a, a global knowledge uh, sector? Um, you know, what what would that look like? I mean, Facebook isn't the Internet. So maybe we, you know, maybe it might make sense to have essentially interoper interoperable um, domestic social media under some kind of like international framework. I think as a consumer myself, I'm often not aware of what is really happening politically behind everything that I'm using. So I was wondering how to, or what steps do you th t think the public should take to educate themselves about this issue? And also what should we even be advocating for? Yeah, um, oh, that's, oh, that, that's a tough one. I mean, I, well, yeah, so like, uh, you know, just to let the, the podcast, the, the podcast public know. So you sent me the questions here. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about that. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a tough one. And I think that where I kind of landed on that is that I, I wonder if we have to stop thinking as consumers and start thinking more as citizens. I mean, because, I mean, when we think of it as, uh, you know, as citizens, we're the ones who run the show. Um, we, we are sovereign. Um, and it, when we think about it in terms of like just consumers, especially when you're dealing with a monopoly, um, I mean, so consumers, uh, you know, they have power through, uh, um, you know, especially, you know, by, they can do stuff like boycotts or say that they're not going to deal with a company if they're doing, you know, if they're, if they're doing things like, say, for instance, being involved even indirectly in a genocide as, you know, Facebook does, um, you know, you know, the UN called them out on that, um, if you don't have that kind of, if you don't have competition, then essentially you're almost reduced to the level of a supplicant, you know, begging 
foreign companies to, you know, for instance, please stop shoving white supremacism down our throat. You know, please, you know, please stop, you know, like, like live streaming uh, massacres. Um, so, but if we're citizens, we can actually act in a way that, you know, and, and you know, demand things that we don't like. And for me, I think that the, the thing I would, you know, ask, you know, fellow citizens, fellow consumers to think about is the fact that there's always rules on these things and somebody's always going to be making the rules. Um, and and uh, so the question really is, is, who's making the rules? Who's benefiting from these rules? Um, and it's also realizing when we come when it comes to things like, for instance, speech issues, um, the rules are always going to make some people angry and there's always going to be people treated unjustly by these rules. And so what that means is that accountability is super, super important in order to make sure that we can get, you know, the best possible set of rules or if, you know, people really aren't happy with the rule, then they can be changed. So it would be more of, um, you know, of, of course, you know, the stuff that you would think of, you know, you'd be the expert on, you know, the scientific literacy, but thinking about how technology works. My, my, uh, my message would be to think about the rules and think about who makes the rules and think about how you can best influence the rules. And I guess that fits into the very last question that I think research has a huge place in informing a lot of policies that the government creates. But I think sometimes, and especially in science, I see this a lot, which is why I created the last question, that as a researcher, it can be very difficult to connect more, I think, high-level niche jargon kind of topics to the public who might not have as much of a background in that topic. So how do you as a researcher find that you are able to connect your concepts like digital economic nationalism to the general public? Um, well, uh, I, kind of, I come from a journalism background and uh, I mean, the reason I got into to do a PhD was uh, I wanted to see if I could write a book on monograph. So I basically, I, I mean, I love the writing part of it. And I think actually my, probably my favorite type of writing is like the 700 or 800 word essay. So, yeah. So like, so, and so basically what's tended to happen for me is that when I'm, when I'm uh, watching, you know, when I'm watching, when I'm looking what's going on in the world and something seems a little bit off, I'll, I'll, I'll write something about it. So. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of uh, that, so that's kind of one thing that that I've always had and always been interested in is that kind of kind of popular writing. Would you suggest, or do you think it's helpful if other researchers are constantly writing as well? So um, yeah, I mean, yeah. So I mean, I've been writing kind of like in a newspaper style since um, since my undergraduate years, which would have been like <laughs> good lord, um, like the early '90s, so a long time. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think that yeah, the more writing you do, the better you get at it. Um, I mean, even in my own, even in my academic writing, I always try to avoid jargon. I always try to like to uh, do things, you know, say things straightforwardly. So, building off the topic of research, what role do you see research playing in informing government policy? You know, as academics, we're really working on kind of two tracks, like. Um, I really do believe that I, I think our primary goal essentially is to is to kind of accrue knowledge to understand the world and, and to lay that down for, for, you know, for the next generation. And that's that's a really, really kind of kind of slow process. And at the other time, too, when you're watching this stuff happen, it can just kind of like, you know, drive you bananas. 
when you see some when you see like governments doing stuff that to you is absolutely bleedingly obviously the wrong thing to do because you know you've been looking at it for five, 10, 20 years and you know everything about it. But you know, these things only kind of change slowly. And so yeah, so it's 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 a tough thing to, to balance. But sometimes I think that, you know, it, it is important for academics to kind of reach a large audience. And obviously I really like doing that with my own writing. But at the same time too, it can also be kind of I, I do worry sometimes that we that gets pushed a little bit too hard and the with and can kind of you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I find there's a fine line between, for instance, research and communicating the results of our research and, and like direct advocacy for a position. So that's kind of one thing. So that's kind of one thing that I've been thinking about in terms of kind of like how we relate our research to, uh, you know, to the general public. And I think that basically where I kind of landed on it, it is, you know, you can't shy away from, you know, you can't shy away from opinions, but you shouldn't also shy away from nuance and realizing that, you know, um, nothing almost nothing is you know completely you know 100 good or 100 bad and there's always you know trade-offs and stuff that you have to worry about no i completely like 100 percent agree that when you take out some of the historical context the political context economic context of certain issues then perhaps people start to see it as black and white and then that really informs more extreme opinions than the issue might actually warrant yeah, and you know, you might think and you might be right that something is completely, you know, absolutely bonkers bananas and bad. But, you know, that if that if you don't kind of look for that nuance and saying, okay, yes, all the stuff is bad, however there's that going on as well, it can it can uh, it can lead to problems and, you know, affect our kind of, you know, our you know, I'm I, I think I'm just enough of a romantic to think that, you know, as academics we're actually engaged in kind of like a search for the truth. So uh you know, I think, you know, that it can interfere with that. And I'm not a fan of that. I, I kind of like the truth. Thank you, Dr. Hager, for participating in this podcast. It was both extremely educational and very engaging. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this month's episode of the CGO podcast. See you next time. Mm-hmm.